Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Allsport.com and Allsport Magazine, I'm Kevin Turner and this is the Allsport Podcast. It's Wednesday, 24th of March, and before our weekend coverage of the 2021 Formula 1 season begins, we wanted to rewind 20 years to 2001. With Fernando Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen still on the grid this year, it marks two decades since they debuted in F1. They appeared at the same time as fellow newcomers Juan Pablo Montoya and a fourth rookie is often forgotten, Enrique Binaldi. I'm joined today by James Newbold and former Formula 1 engineer and designer Mark Williams. We've got a, an unusual uh, podcast uh, this time and we're going to focus in for reasons that we'll come to later uh, on the 2001 Formula 1 season. Uh, probably best remembered for Mark Schumacher's fourth world title, his second for Ferrari. Uh, and really, the, that's when the Jean Tot, Ross Bourne, Rory Byrne, Ferrari era really got going. Um, McLaren, Mercedes and Williams BMW also put up strong challenges. There was arguably one of the greatest influx of rookies into F1 in a single single season. Uh, and there were a few tech changes as well. Um, so I'd like to introduce my, my two uh, guests. The first was was there on the ground and uh, will, I'm sure, have lots of good uh, anecdotes and insights. Uh, and we've not had him on the podcast for a long time, so I'm very sorry about that. But it's former Lola and McLaren designer and engineer, Mark Williams. Welcome back. And how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's nice to be back on air again. My second guest is really the reason that we're doing this, because he likes random drivers. And he did an interview with uh, Enrique Binaldi, who I would consider to be 
good but random. Uh, and that was about the 2001 season, which has led to this idea of doing a, a, a more full and complete look at the 2001 season. That's uh, James Newbold, uh, our Plus and Engineering Editor. So, James, first of all, I guess you would have been a, a, probably a young fan in 2001. So why Benoldi and why 2001? I was. I was a very young fan. I was seven years old and uh, the 2001 season was really what got me into motorsport um, in all its facets, really, with rallying and touring cars. But um, Formula One, of course, was the thing that was pushed the most. Um, As you mentioned, there were some very exciting rookies um, that year. Juan Pablo Montoya quickly became my favourite driver for his uh, very flamboyant um, performances in the Williams. my mum was always a, a David Coulthard fan, uh, so she thought he was was excellent, and he truly was excellent in 2001. Um, and Enrico Bernaldi is the forgotten member, really, of the uh, 2001 rookie crop that, of course, included Montoya, Kimi Raikkonen and Fernando Alonso, these three drivers that were such a big part of Formula 1 in the 2000s era um Bernoldi was not for reasons which we'll go on to I'm sure later but very excited to talk about the season that got me into racing so before we get into um the sort of the nuts and bolts of the season I just wanted to throw to Mark on some of the technical changes that came in for that year one of which sort of reminded me slightly of what's happening for 2021 with what apparently to a layman probably seems quite a minor thing obviously 2021 we've got the cuts out of the rear floor and for 2001 it was the front end the uh, the front wing was raised um it's again seems like quite a minor change but i'm sure from a technical and design point of view that probably created a few headaches didn't it front wings are always key because it's the first thing the air sees before it flows over the rest of the car so it definitely conditions everything to be honest trying to go back 20 years and rack my brains as to exactly what we changed is very difficult i have to be quite honest it all becomes rather a blur And I do remember one season where we did have a front wing issue. And I know Adrian was quite suspicious that it might occur because as soon as we got to the first test in Valencia and we looked to have some issues, he put a fix in place immediately. Um, Although that did involve making various bits out of MDF and it proved to be quite successful. And that's the only front wing drama I can remember in early season testing. And I'm not sure if that was 2001 could have been because if there was a front wing regulation change that usually sparks off these problems and the other big change that came in during the year which was quite which was probably more emotive for fans uh was the return of 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 the controls traction control which everyone everyone hated and which did cause a few problems early on with cars being stranded on the grid and uh, i think most teams had one problem or another at some point with the software um so uh this perhaps feeds more into to david Coulthard's performance so we'll 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 come to that there we'll come to that next um go to We'll go to, to James on that first. Um, on, on, on the face of it, um, David Coulthard much more leading the line than Mika Hakkinen for 2001. Um, obviously, despite the fact that Mika was a double world champion and overall, obviously, you would, you would place him ahead of DC. So do we think that, that this was DC's best season? I think you probably would say that, yeah. I think over the course of the 2001 season, DC was the only person who really held a consistent challenge to to Michael Schumacher in the championship. Um, he one of he had one of his best races in Brazil where he, he beat Michael in a head-to-head fight in the wet, um, which I think we covered in the top 10 DC races 
fast, um, but worth stressing again, a fantastic drive. The mistakes that that cost him really a chance of, of fighting for the world championship were more heavily weighted to the car in terms of reliability um, and sort of the glitches that you mentioned there in terms of the, the traction control than the actual driver errors. The main one really that, that DC could be culpable for was the, the pit lane speed limiter in the French Grand Prix. But other than that, he had three engine failures um, in Montreal, Hockenheim, Monza. And then, of course, there were the launch control issues that left him stranded on the line in Barcelona and Monaco. Uh, Monaco really was a race that, that should have been his for, for the taking. Um, and when you when you look at the, the, the points situation after round four, which was Imola, him and Michael Schumacher both had 26 points. And then over the rest of the season, Michael just racks up the points relentlessly and the problems start to, to strike DC and McLaren. You mentioned there about Hakkinen, and I'm sure uh, Mark can provide a, a better insight into that. But Miku second in the first race of the season in Melbourne, and he has a suspension failure. Um, and then he doesn't really regain sort of that front running pace until well after the midpoint of the season when he's his championship hopes are long gone um, by winning the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. And then, of course, famously, the the Indianapolis um, race after 9-11, which Mark was the engineer for. Absolutely. We'll definitely uh, explore that that one uh, a little bit later on. But I just wanted to sort of pick up the point on, on David Coulthard there. And actually, the thing that struck me looking back at the season, Mark, was how unreliable lots of the cars were. Um, I think we've got used now to seeing cars being almost bulletproof with reliability. But McLaren's reliability rate was, I think, twice as bad as Ferrari's. And Williams BMWs was three times as bad. Now, that does include some driver errors and, and other things, for example. I mean, you can blame Williams or Montoya for Jos Verstappen hitting up the backside in Brazil, uh, which tends to overshadow one of David Coulthard's great drives, I think, actually. I think it's a bit unfortunate that Montoya pulled off those heroics. We'll get to them later on. But um, David picked that out as one of his greatest races when we spoke to him last year. And I know that he was very proud of the Monaco pole lap. So why do you reckon you, McLaren had those reliability issues? Because there were several different ones, weren't there? There were some engine ones. I think there were some clutch ones. There was obviously the software. Was that just pushing the limits to keep up with Ferrari and the Challenger Williams and BMW? Or was it that there just weren't quite the systems in place to, that we've got now to get better reliability? I think your, last, your latter point is absolutely spot on. Uh, if I look back to the years where I was uh, test engineer, which was end of 97 through to the end of 2001, we did a lot of testing, a huge amount of testing. And the idea was you tested lots of components to develop your car. And in so doing, you racked up a lot of miles. And hopefully you exercised the forms. And that's a terrible system because you may not and then suddenly a fault bites you in the race. I mean, you mentioned the Monaco stalling incident for DC. And basically, the what happened there, we could have exercised that fault at any point up to then in the season. At any of the races or any of the tests, that could have happened. And what happened, he's lined, he lined up on the grid and obviously the lights start and he initiates his, his launch sequence. He gets on the throttle, he's holding the RPM and decides he's way too early. And he goes, I'm too early. I need to back out of this. So he lifts off the throttle and the engine instantly dies. Basically, anti-stall failed to catch 
a fast decelerating engine. And I remember going to Silverstone the following week to test this. And we said to, I think maybe Alex was driving, we said, can you try and replicate this? What you need to do is get on the throttle for a launch and then back out of it immediately, stalled straight away. Now, we'd done thousands of miles of testing at this point. How come we hadn't had that happen? And that's because we hadn't done that specific test. So obviously after that, software's re-engineered, lots of things are in place, so we can develop a more robust anti-stall. I mean, anti-stall was there for obvious reasons. You know, you spin, you don't want to stall the engine because you can't restart it. So nobody had really developed it into uh, a particularly robust solution because you didn't need to until Monaco. So that's what put him out, basically. The engine died so quickly, there was no way it could um, keep running. And he had to start from the back, and the rest is history. Well, maybe we, we skip ahead slightly here as we're on Monaco, um, because obviously one of the, arguably the only thing that Bernaldi is remembered for in his brief F1 career, which is a bit unfair, actually, as, as James will, will show us now, is, is holding up uh, DC at Monaco on his his supposed charge through the field which uh, DC and Ron Dennis got quite upset about I was I thought it was a bit of a storm in a teacup really because you know you're fighting for position but yeah James what was uh, what was Bernoldi's take on that when you spoke to him recently for the uh, magazine feature I asked him actually does it kind of make you feel a bit sad that that's the thing that you're most remembered for and he said well no at least people remember me for it <laughs> he said that friends of mine that raced him for one and people don't even remember them so um yeah he he kind of explained that he found it a little bit tricky to reconcile his place in the arrows team because he was a red bull sponsored driver um who would be reporting to um to helmut marco and dietrich matisic but also the team boss tom walkinshaw so he always found it a little bit difficult to reconcile the, the two sides and at that race he was actually ahead of jos verstappen when there was a team order that came through um, to, to let Verstappen through, which he did. Um, and the next car in the queue behind him was, was DC. And I asked him, you know, what do you remember about it? He thought he was just going to hoover him up within a lap or so. And he remembered just how loud the Mercedes engine was through the tunnel behind him. And at one point he even missed a shift because he felt intimidated by it. He recalls DC going up the inside of him Massonet or, or one of those corners in the first part of the lap, sort of leaving the door half open, expecting DC to go up the inside, and he didn't. And at that point, he, he got onto the marbles and almost crashed. And he said, "Right, I'm going to hold you now for the for the rest of the stint because that was your opportunity. You didn't take it. It was obviously a tricky car to drive. That arrows. It was quite aerodynamically inefficient. Um, the the, the traction control system that it had was rather crude, as he put it. I mean, it would cut in at the wrong points and it would destabilise the car. Not the most easiest of, of cars to handle around Monaco when you have the, the fastest car on track behind you. Um, and, you know, I guess ultimately he was doing his job, which is to, you know, keep racing and um when there were cars that were coming through to lap the pair of them he, he did you know he was watching his mirrors he let them go through and then just continued until his pit stop so um a tricky one really because ultimately as any racing driver wants to be remembered for their their good moments and we might come on to those later kev if you deem them worthy of discussing his his good moments but unfortunately <laughs> that's what he is best <laughs> recalled for 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's fair to say that he did out-qualify Jos Verstappen across the season as well, which wasn't a bad bad effort. You know, Verstappen probably starred a few more times in the races. Um, but uh, yeah, Benoldi probably does get a, a, a bad rap, really. But from but from perhaps McLaren's worst race to its one of its best, and I think probably one of the best performances uh, of the whole season, was, was Mika Hakkinen's drive uh, at Indianapolis. Um, it had been a very difficult season for him. Um, obviously, DC had been stronger and Mika had had such unreliability. I think some of his comments about his sabbatical show that he was probably sort of lack, beginning to wane with his motivation. But he did have two very special days that year. One was at Silverstone where he overtook Mark Schumacher on the way to victory. And the other one was, was Indianapolis, Mark. And you've got a very personal insight into that. So do you, can you talk us through how you came to be involved and why Mika's drive was so impressive? I was test engineer for McLaren at the time. So I was principally running uh, Alex Verts. But I would also run both of the Grand Prix drivers from time to time. And I'd obviously known Mika uh, since I joined the team in end of 97. What was very interesting with Mika was that he wasn't a man of many words until his son was born and then you couldn't shut him up. That was a marked change in Mika and he became a much easier guy to talk to. But very much when he was in the car, he was still a man of few words, which actually helped you a lot because he would focus on exactly what he would want you to fix. So in terms of engineering him, very, very easy. The whole situation came about because his race engineer, Mark Slade's wife, was expecting a baby. So I went along to the Monza race as a bit of a lead-in and see how everything worked and refresh my memory of uh, race team procedures. And then off we went to Indianapolis um, to do my first race for McLaren. I was looking forward to it because I'd lived in Indy. I knew the place quite well. And so I was uh, very happy to go. It was a bit of a challenge because obviously we'd had 9-11 and that had everybody a little bit worried about how things might pan out, but everything was okay. And Mika was on great form. He was on fantastic form. Okay, it was his birthday. We had Joe Ramirez's leaving party. We had a lot of stuff going on, a lot of fun stuff. And he was absolutely buoyant. And... We had things go wrong and it didn't affect him. You know, the classic first thing, you go out in P1 and you want to have a nice steady run and we lost the engine. I think it might have been a hydraulic problem. But anyway, we installed the car and had to change the engine in the middle of the session. The mechanics did a fantastic job. And I think the whole thing was back in 45 minutes, which is pretty much a record. In hindsight, that probably benefited us because... We weren't chasing a green track. You know, quite often you start P1 with a setup you think is going to work really well. And it doesn't because the track's too green and the grip's too low and you end up changing it. And probably coming back to where you started by the end of the session. So to actually miss most of it wasn't a big handicap. Didn't phase him at all. And we got the setup moved in a good direction. And whenever the, the car started to improve and suit him, it was such a force multiplier. And he just got faster and faster. And we made the car quicker and quicker. And he got faster and faster. And we had a great run. And we went into qualifying. And he was absolutely on fire. Put it on the front row. Fantastic job. Everybody was really pleased, including myself. Of course, then we get to Sunday morning. And he jumps the 
light going out of the pit lane in the warm-up, which, I mean, what a crazy infringement, and ends up losing his fastest qualifying time. So we are then on the second row, and he's still not phased. And I remember saying to him before the race, don't worry about it, it's not going to be a problem. Tuck in behind, look after your tyres, particularly the left rear, because this whole race is going to be about tyres, tyre wear. We need to push the first stop as long as we can, and you've got to look after those tyres. I think we can one stop, but it's going to be tight. And he said, okay, that's what I'll do. And after the race, he said, that was great advice. That's what I did, which was a really nice touch. And we went into the race. I didn't think we were going to win it. I thought, yeah, we'll be on for a podium, but I can't see us winning this race. So I think for us, it came to us in a couple of ways. One, we pushed the stop long. And I remember before we stepped onto the pit wall, Ron saying to me, Mark, what are you worried about? And I said, Tywe, I think we've pushed the first stop very long and I think it's going to be a problem. I think we're going to run out of rubber. And he said, don't worry, Mark, it's not a problem. If we get to that stage, the lap times will drop off and we'll just pull him in. I think he probably set his fastest lap on the lap before we pulled him in. And when we took the tyres off, you could see the cords. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and after the event, our Bridgestone engineer came to us and said, Mark, I can't believe you did that. I said, well, it wasn't in the plan. So we managed to pull off a long stint and got away with it. When we went back out again, it was all looking good, other than I couldn't understand why Michael was so slow. And if you look at the race trace, he, he comes out from his stop, and he should, by getting the jump on us, have powered past. And it didn't happen. He basically backed up and slowed down and dropped right off. And that's how we won the race, because I'm sure he could have challenged us for that win. There must have been some problem with the car that has, has never come out because there's no reason why he should have lost that pace unless there was a car problem. So that basically handed us the race win, if I'm honest. Well, I, th I think there was also, well, there are a couple of other things going on, weren't there, and that Ferrari and Williams were battling each other quite a lot during the early stages uh, before one Pablo Montoya's engine blew up. Um, and also, that I think at that point, um, Schumacher had already won the championship and Ferrari were into the mode of trying to help Rubens Barrichello finish second in the championship, beat DC. At uh, one stage, he moves out of the way for him. Uh, and I just wonder whether whether that played into your hands a bit as well, while they were almost focused in the wrong place, because it was quite a stealth drive from Hakkinen. I don't think um, you weren't the only one that didn't think he wasn't going to win the race, um, which, is why it's, uh, which is why it's such a, such a good one. As you say, he didn't need to win. But, you know, for a driver not to win a race, I mean, that's, that shows fantastic support for the team because he had the opportunity to win that race and he chose not to. And basically, by doing so, gave it to us. I mean, that's a very strategic play unless he had an issue. But as you can see, he's, once he's dropped back behind Barrichello, he picks the pace up again and runs to the flag. Absolutely. So, well, before we before we move on to, to, to the rookies, that, that brings up another couple of threads that I thought was worth worth uh, talking about. And one is that the, the team orders in the other direction at Ferrari in the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, now, I'm going to throw this one to James because the reason that Mark Schumacher is behind Rubens Barrichello towards the end of the race is because of a moment of, in my opinion, madness from Montoya. But as the uh, as the young fan that you were, you had a different take on Montoya's defence of his lead from Schumacher, didn't you? 
<laughs> I did, yes. I well, I remember watching that race. It was probably one of the first races that I ever watched. <laughs> There's a weird backstory here that involves my mum's chiropractor who worked <laughs> for Montoya and had a massive poster of Montoya in his um in his practice. Um and when I said that uh, I, I quite like watching the races. Um, the next time we went back, there was a, a signed autograph card from Montoya. So immediately I thought, brilliant, I'm, I'm going to be a Montoya fan. And it, it must be that, that the Austria race would have been quite close in time to that. Um, the, the two Williams cars are on the front row of the grid. And that's a classic one for launch control because you have three cars that are stranded on the grid, Hakkinen included, <laughs> typical fashion for anything that could go wrong seemed to go wrong for Mika that year, um, as well as uh, Truly's Jordan and Heidfeld Sauber. So you have the two Williams that streak away at the front. Um, Ralph Schumacher then drops out with brake problems. Um, so then Montoya is left to hold off the Ferraris and Jos Verstappen's arrows, which has come charging through on its light fuel load. Uh, and DC is just behind this bunch in, in fifth place at that point. Um, and it's worth pointing out at this stage that this 2001 season is the first year for Michelin. It's the first year for the tyre war. Um, and Michelin is still kind of working out how how to basically make tyres go through the blistering phase um, and not completely fall off a cliff. And so Montoya's got this pack of Bridgestone cars crawling all over him and he's trying to play every trick in the book to hold them off. Uh, and Michael gets a really good run out of the first corner up the hill towards the tight turn two. Um, and Montoya basically just loses braking impossibly late. Schumacher's trying to pull a bit of an odd move around the outside, presumably with the intent of doing the, the classic cutback move into the next corner down the hill. Um, but Montoya just, <laughs> just locks up and goes straight on and takes Michael with him into the gravel. Um, and at the time, I just thought, brilliant, you know, never say die, keep going, um, you know, hold your place at any circumstance. And I can see Mark shaking his head because with hindsight now, I can see, yes, I mean, the, the obviously the, the better thing for, for Montoya to have done would have been to um, to, to seed and to realise that actually this wasn't really doing anybody any favours. But that was just the kind of driver he was. And that was what did me to him as a, as a, as a young fan really. Um, so Michael ends up going into the gravel. Verstappen has to pit early because he's on a two strategy. So that leaves Barrichello out in the lead with DC behind him. Uh, and it's it's a one-stop race between the two of them with, with Michael trying to catch up past the likes of Panis in the BAR and um, Raikkonen in the Sauber. DC comes out of the final stop ahead of Rubens and, and goes on to take a uh, an emotional win, given that that was the weekend that um, came after the death of the Ilmore co-founder Paul Morgan. Rubens is, is behind in, in second place with, with Michael catching him up. This is only the, I think, sixth round of the championship of 15 races that year. Oh, heaven forbid, 15 races, and now we've got 23. Michael's coming up behind, and you hear uh, on the on the world feed the, the order from Jean Todd, Rubens let Michael pass for the championship. You think, crikey. I mean, that was how far, how determined Ferrari were willing to go, given that back then the points scores were 10-6-4-3-2-1, I believe. So the increment of finishing second instead of third for Schumacher would only have been an extra two points. It's not like today where um, it's it's quite a big jump in the points. So 
<laughs> to score an extra two points in the sixth round of the series, um, they forced Barrichello into giving up the, the place on the final lap, which you know shows how ruthless the, the Ferrari team of that era was. Yeah, it was uh, it was round six of seventeen, just uh, just to clarify that. But yeah, but uh, in- interesting because he often gets lumped in with what happened the following year. Uh, at the same venue, but I do think it was being slightly different for two key reasons. One, well, three actually. One is um, it was clear in 2001 at that stage that McLaren and David Coulthard were serious threats. Whereas in 2002, by the time they got to Austria, Mark was already miles ahead of everyone in the championship. So it seemed a bit unnecessary. The second one was in 2002, Rubens genuinely had Michael beaten. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd earned that win. Whereas, as I say, Mark was only behind Rubens because of of other circumstances. And of course, the third thing is it was for a second place, not a win. And I think you know we all accept that there's a, an absolutely enormous gulf between a first and, <laughs> and a second mentally for a driver to give up. Perhaps we should move on to the rookies now, as Montoya was such a key part of that race, and uh, he was definitely an exciting person, kind of a, almost like a Nigel Mansell, Max Verstappen type person to have on the grid in terms of making things happen. I think looking back at 2001, he did make too many errors. You know, there were there were crashes at Canada, Monaco. He had a few wild moments. I think that Austrian move was pretty pants, to be honest. Um, uh, obviously, he got everyone excited with the, the the move in Brazil on Michael after the restart. Um, you know, Ralph Schumacher was on top of him for the first half of the season. Um, admittedly, Montoya did have some appalling reliability, but I wanted to come to you, Mark, because uh, of the three three of the four rookies, and we've obviously we've covered the famous one, Bernaldi, there already. Um, of the other three makeweights that joined the grid that year, um, it was Montoya, Kimi Raikkonen at Sauber, uh, and Fernando Alonso. And you've got experience with working with with all three, so can you kind of give us, I uh, guess, a brief rundown of the the strengths, weaknesses, pros, cons of, of of each of those three? I have a very clear order in my mind of these three, but I want to hear from someone who's actually worked with them. I think for Montoya, great guy to work with, super enthusiastic, but would often be overcome by the moment and make mistakes, crazy mistakes, things you should put behind you and move on. And I think that's what you know has held back his results tally in F1, really, which is a shame because he's a great guy, he's a smart guy, but can be overwhelmed by the moment and lose it, which is such a shame. Kimi, as we know, is is truly amazing, um, entertaining as well. A man of even fewer words than Mika, can you believe it? Clearly talented from the from the get-go. And I think it was a very smart move of Ron to pick him up um, obviously, having had experience with Mika, it wasn't such a big risk, was it? Because he was coming highly recommended. And Fernando, I think he's quite often underrated. He is probably the bravest guy out there I've ever seen. He can put away the thoughts that this car doesn't feel great and deliver a lap time that is probably spot on what... Um, a simulated lap time would be, which is an incredibly brave driver, but he's just relying on grip. Real guys feel what the car's doing and will react to it, and they will lift out of the throttle when it feels really bad. I remember watching Fernando's qualifying attempt at Indy, or rather when he failed to qualify at Indy. I have never seen a car that loose been driven round Indianapolis. That was a staggering lap. And when you compare it to his 
subsequent attempt when the handling was sorted, it's chalk and cheese. And you have to say, what a brave guy. I don't know how he drove that lap. It's quite incredible. And that's why he's been successful, because he can put behind him the thoughts that the car doesn't feel great. He knows it doesn't feel great, and he'll tell you it doesn't feel great, but he'll deliver an amazing lap time. And he's quite a useful asset, because if your other driver can't match his pace, you know for sure you have a bad car. And when the two drivers are very close, look at you know 2007 with Fernando and Lewis, you know, trading races, trading times, you know you've got a good car. And if there's a big gap between the drivers, you know you've got a very difficult car to drive. I think the other guy who's, who's up there in that league is probably Max. He can also drive a car that's difficult to drive and put it behind him. And it's a great attribute, but teams who have those drivers must be aware of that. Because it's too easy to say, well, he's quick. Why can't you do that lap time? Whereas what you should be saying is, fortunately, he's quick and we need to work on the car. Which is exactly where Red Bull was or has been for the last couple of years, really, in its attempts to try and get a driver that's really anywhere near Max. It sounds like from pre-season testing that their car is a bit more sensible. The RB16B is a bit more sensible. So we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to that when the season gets underway. But just to, just to add to your Alonso point, sort of two observations, really. One is from his time uh, from the doing the Indy 500, but I think you can see it in Grand Prix as well, is that he has an unbelievable... Uh, understanding of what is going on in the race. So I think his spotters, uh, the team that he worked with at Indy did say that rarely have they worked with someone who just knows where everyone is on the track. Uh, and you can see it on some of the onboards um, in F1 as well. He just knows where everyone else is. And that an accident is about to happen before it happens. He's just, uh, which is why, of course, he was able to gain so many places on first laps, even when the the McLaren Honda was 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 poor. He invariably came through somewhere ridiculous um and the other observation is i think it's just such a shame that we haven't seen more alonso versus lewis hamilton in more recent years because uh, i think alonso was a more complete package in their earlier parts of their career but hamilton has now got there and i think they're the only they're, the, the, the two of them have been on a, a separate level you mentioned that it wasn't uh much of a risk for mclaren to take kimmy for 2002 Remarkable, really, given that he'd only done, I think, 23 car races before his maiden F1 season. And he was actually put on probation by the FIA to prove that he could could do it. And, of course, he <laughs> scored a point on his first race, which uh, um, put a few noses out of joint, I'm sure. But, of course, up to that point, um, McLaren had kind of thrown its weight behind Nick Heidfeld in the junior categories. So what was your view on how good Heidfeld was and with hindsight, whether it was the right decision or not, because in some ways, I, I suppose, Kimmy had the perfect barometer from McLaren in terms of a guy that the McLaren team knew well. I find it very, very difficult to judge when we go back in time, driver performance. I can comment on all the guys I've worked with. And when you're running at the top level, Formula One, all the guys are good. They're all good. There are exceptional ones, but they're all good. And I think when we look back and come up with lists of drivers, it's 
it's a modified list because reliability has had such an impact. I mean, one of the races that you haven't mentioned was from 2001 was the Spanish Grand Prix, which Mika dominated and ran away with only to um, lose the clutch in, in the last few laps. And you forget that race because he didn't win it. But if you look at it, you go, he should have won that race. And I think reliability dominates our judgment more than it should. I mean, what's so nice now is cars finish races. Engines last the distance. And in those days, they just didn't. I think one of the biggest improvements to Formula One in terms of spectator value is the improvement in reliability. And it came about because of the reduction in testing. Because the reduction in testing forced teams to do a lot more in-house testing of stuff, which, to be honest, is what you should do anyway. It's what it, it's it's what uh, OEMs do. You know, they have rigs that open and close doors that sit on seats that test all the components to destruction. And what did we do? We went out and ran lots of miles and hoped to exercise force. And it just shows you it fails to do that. So I think what we've seen as a result of banning testing is teams getting a lot smarter and figuring out that they'd better get it right first time and we're going to need to test a load of stuff. So cars come out and go to the first test and usually do 100 laps each day. Testing has absolutely driven and improved spectator sport. And it's a shame because I used to enjoy testing. I used to enjoy going out and trying new bits and developing the car. It doesn't happen anymore. It's all done on a Friday. So Friday is a test day now. But the racing's better. So you can't knock it. It was the right decision because it just improved reliability. And the engine regulations, three units to do a season. Unbelievable, isn't it? But it does mean that they will do that. And if I go back to the times, you know, the, the late 90s and the early 2000s, you know, engines were like hand grenades. I mean, I, I, I've been testing and we've put an engine in and done a shift check in the morning and blown it up on the stands. Changes in regulations, the engine regulations, limiting the number of engines, limiting testing to pre-season massive improvement in reliability so you can now actually judge drivers on their performance and it's not affected by the fact that they didn't finish races because of unreliability now i'm pleased to hear you you say that actually mark because obviously one of the modern criticisms of formula one is that the cars are are too reliable and you don't get as many random results anymore i I rather prefer to see drivers um, that the right drivers win win the right races rather than having people blow up. Um, and we we did get a few random results last year with Sergio Perez winning and Pierre Gasly winning, of course. You know that that's one of the nice things I like about the young driver competition that we do each year is you come into it and go here's two days worth of competition and that's what we're going to judge these guys on. I, I know that James has a, a, a sort of slightly alternative view on the kind of randomness of results, which I think a lot of fans will appreciate. I kind of understand that as well. So, and and some of the beneficiaries of the random results, um, uh, sort of are on our list. Really, I guess you know one would be Sauber, 
who had the fifth fastest car in 2001, finished fourth in the championship thanks to unreliability elsewhere, largely at Jordan, I think, <laughs> which had a quicker car but struggled to finish a race. So, so James, could you just sort of run us through the, the, the efforts of, uh, of Raikkonen and your mate Nick Heidfeld, the Sauber C20, uh, probably its best, I guess it's probably the team's best Formula 1 car, really. I think you'd have to agree with that, yeah. I, I mean, the, the Sauber C20 was a, a really interesting design with a twin keel suspension that um, I believe was one of the first times that was done in, in Formula 1. Um, and really, they were competitive right off the bat. You mentioned their Jordan's unreliability, um, and they really should have got a podium at some point in the season. The number of opportunities that went begging for Jordan um, verges on laughable, really. Um, but actually, it's, it's Sauber that through a lot of those opportunities is able to pick up the pieces. And we saw that last year with Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz Jr. at McLaren. Having two drivers that are very evenly matched means that you can pick up points when rivals drop the ball, which was the case with the racing point, which was last year's third fastest car um, and ultimately missed out on, on third in the constructors to McLaren. Um, but, you know, as, as an example of one of those chaotic days um brazil the the, the the third race of the season nick heidfeld's on the podium um which is the first salva podium for a, a very long time i haven't actually looked up when the previous occasion would have been but um heidfeld um had an absolutely disastrous rookie season after winning the Formula 2000 title but prost so this was in some ways you could say his first season really in a, in a proper car he and Raikkonen were, were in the points for the first race in Australia um, which is one of those where um, Jordan had looked to be in a good position only for Frenson to be knocked off by Rubens Barrichello um, and throughout the rest of the season actually Raikkonen gets a, a good couple of fourth places in Austria um, which is the one I mentioned earlier where Heidfeld was stuck on the grid with launch control failure and he also gets fourth in Canada uh, Heidfeld gets a, a, a bunch of sixth place finishes over the, the latter half of the season he gets a bunch of sixth place finishes in the second half of the season which means he, he outscores Raikkonen on the basis of um, the extra points he'd scored earlier for the podium um, but a really strong season for, for Raikkonen that that given how little was expected of him as the um, as the, the guy coming up from Formula Renault um, he'd, he'd absolutely dominated that championship and um, there's an interesting feature on autosport.com a couple of years ago by Adam Cooper that that talks about how Raikkonen came from nowhere really to, to get that that seat and hurdles that had to be overcome in order to, to get his, his, his butt in the car. Um, but yeah, it, it's a little surprise really that, that Raikkonen went on to do what he did given that with no experience, such a, a young guy that, that was still maturing physically as well as um, mentally and in terms of his technical understanding to have let through not only Formula 3000, but also Formula 3, which most people kind of say is, is the category that you learn um, car setup and um, all the little tricks of the trade um, is a remarkable testament to his ability, really. And you mentioned as well, um, the Minardi team, was basically saved at the at the eleventh hour before the season by Paul Stoddart. Um and Alonso 
was was partnered by Tarso Marquez, who had been a, a Penske IndyCar driver a couple of years before, and he won a race in Formula Three Thousand. So, you know, not a not a complete slouch, but Alonso just blew him into the weeds, really. Uh, and over the course of the season, Alonso put, put in a few kind of starring drives, most notably qualifying at Indianapolis, um, where he was 17th on the grid ahead of Jacques Villeneuve in the BAR, which is remarkable, really. And I think we're going to go on to top 10s shortly, but um, in Autosport magazine that year, um, there were, as we have now, driver rating. And on average across the season, Alonso had the third highest average behind only Michael Schumacher and David Coulthard, which, you know, shows that in poor equipment, you can still show what you're about. And Alonso certainly did that in the 2001 season for all the reasons that the markers has already outlined. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, it was kind of like a, a bit of a George Russell at Williams scenario. Only only lasted the one year rather than three, <laughs> um, which George has uh, just had to do. But um, before we get onto those top ten driver lists that James mentioned, I just wanted to throw one more question to Mark, really, which was at the end of two thousand one into two thousand and two, McLaren obviously decided to jump ship from Bridgestone and switch to the Michelin tyre. I mean, Michelin obviously fantastic tyre company and had really proved their worth in their first season. But with hindsight, um, you know, Ferrari's uh, competitiveness in 2002 and then 2004, two of the most dominant cars in F1 history, um, a lot of that is put down to them being able to develop effectively their car and their tyre together, whereas obviously you were sharing Michelin with, um, you yeah, know, with Williams, I guess would be the primary one. So do you think with hindsight that that was the wrong move to leave Bridgestone with Ferrari or, or was it a worth the punt at the time given that Ferrari was getting stronger anyway? I think at the time it was the right move, and I still do. And I'm pretty much on record as saying that at the time, that if we had the choice and it was possible, that that would be the company of the two that I would go with. I'd had a lot of experience when I was working on the Super Touring programme for McLaren with the BMW gig of working with Michelin. And so I knew the players and I knew they were very strong and I knew their approach was very, very well organised, very systematic. Um, I'm not saying anything against Bridgestone. They were good, but I felt we needed to be on a different tyre. Um, we just needed to have the edge and that if we could work with Michelin to develop a better tyre, then we'd have that edge. Um it's a hard one because there's so many factors affecting performance that it's difficult to single one thing out. I felt that Michelin had some amazing innovative ideas. And that was, you know, shown many times. They're a great company, but so is Bridgestone. Both of them are at the top of their game when it comes to producing racing tyres. Absolutely at the top of their game. So it doesn't matter which one you pick, really. But it's always a good idea to be on a different tyre to the people you're competing against if you feel confident enough that together you can make it work. And we did. And I think we did, to be honest. I think we lost championships mainly through unreliability. I mean, you, just, you, you look at what happened and we, you know, if we start a season well, it starts to unravel with unreliability. And that's what's quite sad, really, that 
our drivers have lost championships because their cars didn't finish. Crazy things. I remember the um, French Grand Prix, Magni Corps race. Mika didn't make the start. And the reason for that was after the warm-up, they'd done a ratio change. And prior to that race, as a weight-saving measure, the gearbox cover dowels were changed from steel to titanium. And in changing ratios, one of these dowels had come out, fallen inside the gearbox, and the magnet won't pick it up. It's titanium. So it broke the gearbox. Now, that's a crazy thing to happen, isn't it? All for the sake of saving negligible amount of weight with hindsight. But if you don't do things like that, you don't get to the top. So you have to push everything. But in pushing everything, it was overlooked that this Dow may come out and prevent you starting a Grand Prix. How crazy is that? But those are the sort of things that will lose you a championship. You cannot afford to have things like that happen. Because as they always say, to finish first, first you must finish. And it's absolutely true. So I think we gave away a huge number of races. And, you know, when the car was good and suited the circuit and the drivers were on great form, because, as I say, when things start to work, it's a force multiplier, the results came. But we gave far too many away. And that's something that you could probably have got away with in previous eras because lots of teams were doing that. Whereas I think one of the things that perhaps Ferrari did bring in during that period was a level of reliability, which we'd rarely seen before. So on, on their bad days, they'd still finish third or fourth. Whereas on McLaren and Williams's bad days, they'd be smoking, smoking hulks by the side of the road and, and leaving Schumacher and Barrichello to, to pick up more points. So I think that's, yeah, that's sort of a very fair point, really. But um, I think that brings us no. Go on. One, one, one other thing that I think uh, saved uh, teams like McLaren is um, part Fermi, for example, after qualifying. You know, that was felt that it would hold back the top teams who can do more stuff. But actually, it helped us because it stopped us fiddling with the car. You know, if after qualifying at Magni Coeur, the cars had gone to Park Ferme, Mick would have started that race. It's crazy, isn't it? You do the warm-up, and what do you do? You pull the gearbox off, and you change the ratios. Well, hang on a minute. The reason we have a warm-up is to make sure the car functions, having rebuilt it from qualifying. Not so you can do a pre-race test and make the car even more perfect, but maybe more unreliable. So... Actually, you know, having a part Fermi after qualifying, well, actually, as you're going to qualify effectively, was a massive favour for the team because it stopped us messing it up. So <laughs> there's been lots of regulation changes that people have hated, but actually they've improved the sport massively. So, again, there's something that helped us when it eventually occurred. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And actually, I think there's probably a separate podcast in um, 
daft and amazing last minute changes that have, have uh, stuffed a team uh, at Le Mans. There's a well, there's probably a podcast just in teams doing late changes just before a 24 hour race, which I mean is even more crazy, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so we, we'll we'll come move on to the to the drivers um, now. Uh, James has very kindly put together four different top driver top tens uh, that were produced at the end of 2001. So I'll quickly just uh, race through them and then I'll let James. Um, pick them apart as he sees fit to start with. Um, so all sports one um, was Mark Schumacher, David Coulthard, Fernando Alonso, Ralph Schumacher, Juan Pablo Montoya, Kimi Raikkonen, Nick Hardfield, Jarno Trulli, Giancarlo Fisichella, and then Mika Hakkinen in 10th. Uh, Murray Walker, um, we'll come to him in a minute as well. He also had Schumacher and Coulthard one and two. Ralph Schumacher third, Rubens Barrichello fourth, which I thought was quite generous, Nick Hydefield fifth, Mick Hackman sixth, Juan Pablo Montoya seventh, Raikkonen eighth, Alonso ninth, Fisichella tenth. So a little bit of difference there. Paul Stoddart, who was the Minardi boss, so I think we're into the realms of sort of slightly uh, less uh, less objective judgment, but nevertheless interesting insights. So Schumacher also first, Alonso second, we'll see his driver, Coulthard third, Jorna Lacey fourth, um, and he moved obviously from Prost to Jordan during the course of the year. Uh, Ralph Schumacher, Montoya, Barrichello, Jos Verstappen, Arrows, Fisichella, and Heinz Held Frenson, which I think is very generous given that he lost his drive to Jordan during the course of the year. And then Jean Lacey himself um, put Schumacher first. So Mark Schumacher, for, oh, that's an easy first, isn't it, um, for this one. David Coulthard second, which I think is also pretty much nailed on. And then Montoya, Fisichella, Ralph Schumacher, Nick Hydefield, Raikkonen, Jano Trulli, Hakkinen, and number 10, Eddie Irvine, who um, I think actually did do a, a pretty good job at, uh, at Jaguar, which was going through something of a shambles at the time, which is probably a podcast in itself as well. Um, so, yes, James, which, which of those lists do you either agree with or disagree with the most? <laughs> well, disagree with, I think, is probably an obvious one that, um, bless him, Paul Stoddart's list does have a few eyebrow raising inclusions um, where, you know, to go back to Bernoldi again, um, you know, he outqualified Verstappen through the year. And while Verstappen actually was sort of a, a one lap, first lap king, um, that was because that year's arrows was designed with a fuel tank that was deliberately small in the belief that um, the tyre wall would mean an, a huge amount of graining that would make multiple pit stop races the norm. Um, so obviously that, that didn't turn out to be the case, as we heard with, with, with Hakkinen's one-stop win at, at Indianapolis. So it, it shoehorned the arrows into basically doing every race a two-stop and meant that they would always be that much lighter than everybody else at the start of each race. And Minoldi said himself, you know, we were basically half a second faster per lap than everybody at the start of all the races. So, you know, fair play to Verstappen for, for making those moves. And uh, Bernoldi was maybe a bit more cautious on the first laps as a rookie than Verstappen and a naturally aggressive driver was. But I think that Verstappen's first lap performances should be significantly caveated. And I don't think that he really merits a place in the top 10 as a result of that. Frentzen, I'd agree as well. He had a few good drives at the start of the year um, for Jordan. As I mentioned, in Australia, he probably should have been on the podium there. Um, also would have been on the podium in Brazil, but had a, a, a reliability failure that promoted Heidfeld late on. Um, but yeah, also <laughs> Jean Alessi, a very generous fourth on Stoddy's list, where uh, in the Autosport season review for the 
the Prost team, it mentioned that Alessi refused to use traction control on the Prost, even though it was faster because he didn't like how it felt. Um, <laughs> a, a stubborn um, reflection there of, of Alessi's character. So I think Stoddart's list is probably the one that I, I disagree with most. But it's interesting that across all of them, you know, there's only five drivers that appear on all of the lists. So um, Michael Schumacher, Coulthard, Ralph Schumacher, Montoya, and interestingly, Giancarlo Fisichella, who I think merits a mention because um, he goes from, well, he's driving the Benetton that year, which is manifestly an awful car. Um, I've actually written a, a piece about this car that hopefully will, will feature in Autosport magazine later in the year. It was the final Benetton before the team translates to its Renault guys, and it features a wide-angle engine that basically has no torque. Um, the car was designed late because there was a, a supposed breach of, of confidential information uh, at the team, which meant they had to do some breach of confidential information at Renault, which meant that they had to um, redesign the engine late on. Uh, so the car was finished late, and for several races, Physicaler and his teammate Jensen Button were 19th and 21st. In fact, they were, I think, in those positions for three races in a row. Um, so he goes from driving a car that is back row fodder, really, to by the end of the season um, qualifying inside the top 10 and has one of the most standout performances of the year at Spa, um, where he finishes third and is ahead of DC for, for the majority of the race. Um, there was a bit of controversy over that because Benetton didn't change the front tyres. And in those days, they had grooved tyres uh, and of course when you leave the tyres on they become basically slicks <laughs> so which is what the tyres should have been all along anyway but that's a, that's a set for discussion too <laughs> stupid grooved dry tyres what was that about <laughs> so yeah but I mean Fisichella got a, a fantastic podium there as we know he was a, a, a spa specialist um, but it shows how highly he was you know rated by everybody that, that he made all four lists where Hakkinen, who won two races and, as Mark mentioned, lost the win in, in Spain on the final lap, um, uh, didn't make uh, uh, Paul Stoddart's list. Um, Jean, uh, Jean Lacy didn't include Fernando Alonso on his list. Um, I'm not sure that I would have put him second as, as Stoddart did. Interesting, though, that he was third on the combined, on, on the average of the top tens on Autosports list. Um, and Autosports list did have Ralph Schumacher above Montoya and Raikkonen above Heidfeld, which I think was interesting because, you know, in both of those, you could say that um, they almost had a season of two halves where where Kimi was perhaps the more impressive driver in the first half of the year. Um, Ralph was the more impressive William start of the year. And then perhaps they sort of flipped um, in the second half of those seasons. Um, Barrichello not making the top 10 for Autosports averages I thought was very interesting for reference he was 11th so he only narrowly missed out to, to Hakkinen um, but yeah at the start of the year Barrichello did have a few um, moments that attracted some controversy with knocking Frentzen off in in, in Australia he spun Rashimak at the first corner in, in Malaysia and he had a rather clumsy accident with Ralph Schumacher in the, the Brazil race as well, where he just locks up and smashes into the back of him in a um, uh, a preview of what Verstappen would later do to to, to Montoya at the same corner. Um, 
yeah, Barrichello had a, an up and down season, really. Um, perhaps could have won at Indianapolis in the race that went to Hakkinen um, before he had his engine failure. Um, perhaps wouldn't have had him as high as as, as Murray had him. Um, I agree that fourth is perhaps a bit generous, but maybe somewhere in the lower reaches of the top 10. Um, I am glad, though, that Yano Trulli made the majority of lists um, because I think he was desperately unlucky that year to, to not score uh, a podium at least. And to, he, he really did bear the brunt of the majority of Jordan failures, although um, I'm sure he, he didn't earn too many admirers within McLaren for his move on DC at the first corner at Silverstone, which I think was a bit of a 50-50 where, you know, if that happened now, DC would have just opened up the steering and maybe used a bit more of the runoff that we have now at Cox Corner at Silverstone. Um, but back then it was all gravel on the exit and understandably he was the car ahead going into the corner. Perhaps didn't really want to yield when Trulli was kind of halfway alongside up the inside um, at a point where he couldn't really go anywhere else and DC turned in and the rest is history. I think truly is drifting past the apex a little bit as well, though. I think there's a little bit of understeer that's set in in that uh, situation. But yeah, DC is fairly uncompromising. Probably a racing incident is a fair fair conclusion. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would I would pretty much agree with with everything James said. Although I'm, I would go with the all sport list because I think on balance I'd have Ralph ahead of Montoya because he made a few mistakes. Montoya did make a few well rookie errors because he was. Um, I'd also be tempted to put Mika ahead of Fizzy. Yeah, Fisichella did a few daft things during that uh, that season, including lining up on the re- wrong grid slot in Malaysia. Um, he was prone to that sort of thing. But Jensen Button did did describe him, I think, when he retired as probably the best driver of a bad car that he'd ever come across. Um, Fizzy's one of those guys that was really good in a midfield sort of mediocre car, but just couldn't really deliver when it was the constant pressure of being a front runner. I mean, let's face it, he was completely destroyed by Fernando Alonso at Renault. And I still think, I still don't forgive him for throwing away the 2005 Japanese Grand Prix in a race that half, the, in a car that half the field had a one in from that position, uh, letting Raikkonen do him on the last lap by defending thin air. But uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll move on from uh, from that one. So yeah, I, I think I'd pretty much go with uh, with all sports list there. I quite like Jean Lacey's list as well. Um, I quite like the fact he's managed to include Eddie Irvine because I do think Irvine did a good job. Um, uh, but I'm not sure who I'd take out of the list to get him get him in. So, Mark, are there any any observations you have to make on that? Any any people that you think should be higher, lower, or worthy of mention? I thought that was an interesting comment about Jean Alesi, um not liking to use the traction control facility, and I can understand that because sometimes they can be. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Sometimes a traction control system can hold you back because it's overprotecting. And drivers will believe they can do a better job, and sometimes they can. It's very subtle setting up a traction control system so that the driver has some input into it. And I think that's one of the successes that McLaren had in 2007, is that driver input could modify the slip target, so that the driver had some control over the level of traction control without doing the switches. And I always remember an interesting incident with John Alacy. He did a test for us at Paul Ricard, and all our drivers were quite comfortable using steering wheel switches to do 
modifications. And we had some electronic dampers on the car and I'd done a little program that I wanted him to run through to try various settings on the dampers and it involved using the steering wheel switches. So I sat to and I explained exactly what I wanted. And he looked at me and said, I don't do switches. I said, well, what do you mean you don't do switches? He says, I don't do switches, we'll pit, we'll change them and I'll go out again. And I thought, wow, I can't believe that. How can you not do switches? But he didn't. That's an amazing contrast to onboards of Marcus Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton changing diff settings and brake bias and whatever from corner to corner. And shows, I think that that perhaps reveals slightly Lace's weakness because I think in terms of driving ability, we know he was he was mega. Look at his coming into Formula One, he made waves immediately. But he really... Yeah, the fact that he only won one Grand Prix wasn't just down to Ferrari reliability. Uh, I think they were, I think they were his own fa- a great, a great hero for many. But I think there was probably a reason that uh, Ferrari needed Mark Schumacher to go and win uh, all those championships. I think it was a difference between um, between them. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, that. The, your traction control comments makes me think of GT3 racing as well, of course, where you've got the traction control turned up to maximum for the amateurs, and then one of the first things that pros do when they jump in is put it down to minimum, so they're in more control of the car. So um, I'm sure there's an element. Uh, the sound they sounded terrible as well, even on the footage. The traction control kicking in sounds horrible. I remember somebody saying at an FIA meeting, "At the end of the day, we are purveyors of noise." And it's so true, isn't it? What we're selling is noise. And whenever the noise changes, people get upset. You know, look at the uh, latest range of engines when they first came in. It's like, oh, you can't handle the noise. And I remember I took my wife to the Monaco Grand Prix, which is the first time I've taken my wife to a Grand Prix because you don't take your wife to work. But I had to pay her back for all those years of her being a single parent. So I took her to the Monaco Grand Prix. And what was interesting is um, during the Formula One race, you could actually hear the around circuit speakers. You could listen to the commentary, but you couldn't for any of the support races. Mm. I, I quite like the hybrid engines, actually. I think they sound better than that. I, didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the V8s. Uh, I did like the V10s. Obviously, obviously, the best engines would be a Matural Ferrari V12 or, if you're really old, BRM V16, but are now really going off uh, off piste here. But um, actually, perhaps going further back in time is quite an appropriate way to finish because I couldn't really uh, let this podcast go without mention of uh, Murray Walker. Obviously, he passed away uh, recently, and we ended up dedicating um, the, uh, the the issue that we, we ran the 2001 continent in to Murray Walker. Um, he's such a legend in the sport, and in fact, in 2001 was his last. It was when he actually retired, so it kind of ties ties together. Although Murray's idea of retirement, I think, was uh, was was quite vague, and he, he carried on working and doing lots of different things. He's just one of those people that just, just carried on. So I just wanted to sort of finish finish with that and say and say to, to Mark first of all, you know, what do you feel that Murray brought to the sport I mean you must have got used to hearing his voice on the commentaries when you were coming into the sport in the 70s and 80s and of course he was still there when you you were working in it as well so uh, yeah an incredible figure absolutely and what enthusiasm and I think that's what everybody loved so much he could make a few gaffes but he was trained to always be talking commentators talk there's no silence And he was very much of that ethic. So fantastic job. He kept us all entertained. And I think he probably brought a lot of 
new supporters into Formula One because they could engage with him and they could understand what he was saying. And he was a great sparring partner with the other commentators, whoever that happened to be. And they always clearly got on well, had a good rapport, and the whole event went well. What more can you ask? Fantastic guy. Yeah, I, I agree. We, and we've had so many uh, tributes from uh, from fans and people within the sport. Uh, he seems to be one of those people who genuinely there's there's not a bad word to be yeah to be said said about him. Um, what what about you, James? I mean, obviously you'd have grown up um, like myself listening to Murray's commentary. Are there any sort of highlights or sort of uh, special moments you remember? Murray Walker quotes were some of the highlights of, of the working day really when there'd be a, a zinger that would be tossed across the office i i won't uh, do an impression to do to do an injustice to him but what a voice i mean what an enthusiastic presence and a brilliant ambassador not just for formula one but for motorsport as a whole because of course he covered um, bike racing he covered touring cars and when i was growing up and i was you know desperate to learn more about motorsport history you know in the days when VHS tapes were a thing, um, I, I sometimes managed to find an old BTCC VHS tape in a charity shop. And just the enthusiasm that, that Murray had for, you know, even the, you know, the independent drivers like James Kay or, um, you know, people like that, just fantastic knowledge. And yeah, and and as Mark says, you know, he, he was prone to, to the odd gaff, but that just made him that bit more human i think you know he was a he was a relatable guy that was a fan at heart that loved being there in the commentary box and you know portrayed that enthusiasm with every word that he said you know it could be an absolutely dour race but listening to a murray commentary made it that much more alive um and as i said i became a fan in 2001 and it was his last season in the commentary box but um yeah those early memories of, of murray commentating on, on formula one races will will remain and, and a, a, a big part of what made me fall in love with motorsport yeah absolutely I'm, I'm sure that's true for for many thousands if not millions of course because he was actually um his commentary appeared in lots of other countries outside the uk as well through the, the bbc and others so yeah absolutely i mean from for what it's worth my my favorite quotes of his were um the car in front is unique except for the one behind that's identical i thought that was a, a fantastic one and from british touring cars the car upside down is a toyota with will hoy climbing out of it which uh in the 1993 side uh, british touring car race where judy and bailey hoofed his teammate out of the way in a in in one of those great motorsport gaffes um so yeah so thank you murray walker i think is 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 the is the the main line there and thank you to my guests mark williams and james newbold and thank you very much uh, for listening we hope you enjoyed this <laughs> well that's our podcast for today before we go here's what you can see right now on autosport plus luke smith looks at how netflix built on a successful formula in drive to survive season three Stuart Codling from our sister title GP Racing writes about why Mercedes isn't worried about the camouflage games. And in IMSA, after taking over Corvette Racing, 34-year-old Laura wontrop Clausey is leading General Motors through a transitional phase in sports car racing. She talks to our American motorsport expert, David Malchay-Lopez. New subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment. Go to autosport.com forward slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page. Then use promo code PODCAST for that 50% discount. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back soon. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.